many of us don't know how to read the Bible. Um, what's more, many of us don't like the thing. You know, we like a... We like an inspirational sounding Instagram post about the Bible or we like fluffy sounding quotes stripped of their inconvenient context Um, because, you know, context is the great killjoy of biblical merchandising and and inspirational social media posts. Um, But at any rate, many of us don't like reading this library of writings that we call the scriptures or the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And it's a dense story, to be sure. There are hundreds of characters and subplots and locales. Some passages are uplifting and inspirational right off the page. Others are confusing and problematic to our modern thinking. There's violence and brutality, and then there's peace and redemption. There's things like incest and polygamy, and then there's marriage as covenant faithfulness. And this entire library... Um, was drafted thousands of years ago on the other side of the world, steeped in a time and culture so radically removed from our own that without the means to read and understand this library as the authors intended it to be read and understood, many of us eventually just abandon ship. Um, And many of us, I think, are biblically illiterate. Uh, Many of us that are prepared to do the hard work, that we want to understand what the Bible is trying to actually communicate to us, um, we still stall out in the wilderness of the Old Testament. If you've joined us in the Bible reading plan, yep, you're currently reading through the Hebrew Scriptures now, presumably sympathetic to those who have thrown up their frustrated hands in resignation and said, never mind, I don't get it, I give up. And up until now in our discussion over Israel's history books, we've said quite a bit about the way in which we are to sort of mine the stories uh, for parallels rather than for moral anecdotes, you know. But it begs a bigger, more significant question, I think, which is what is the Old Testament for? After all, you know, church tradition uniformly has held that the authority of the scriptures is something that cannot be denied. Uh, Long before this library of writings that we call the Bible was assembled in the format that you and I read today, the church held these writings, these stories, and these scriptures to be authoritative. The earliest Christian thinker to get so frustrated with the Old Testament and propose throwing the whole thing out uh, in general got uh, labeled a heretic and denounced from the church proper. So no, the Old Testament along with this entire library of writings called the scriptures has been held by the church to be authoritative. And if the Bible is an authority over us, how is a story about, say, war that took place some 3,000 years ago, how exactly is that authoritative? What does that mean? When we read Israel's history, in what way is it an authority to us? How exactly do I submit to the authority of a 3,000-year-old narrative about incest or about polygamy? Now, Bear with me, things are going to get somewhat dense and heady for the next 15 or 20 minutes, but please try to stay with me because I think we're going somewhere important. To get at the answer of how the Old Testament is authoritative, I want to fast forward in time beyond Israel's ancient history to the first century. So Israel's history books um, end sort of tragically with a people that have been judged by God, they've been sent into exile, and when the story does wrap up, they're still despairing and they're nursing this glimmer of hope for a coming king that's said to restore Israel, the very thing that their prophets had promised or spoken of. Someone to succeed where Israel had failed and establish God's kingdom once and for all. 
And then the New Testament opens. It opens in the first century. The people of Israel are back in the land, but they're under the brutal, horrifically oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and still in want of a rescuing king. We're back in the land, but this isn't God's kingdom. This isn't God's king. So the story focuses in on this character called Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, A rabbi that's committed to the teaching and the practice of the Hebrew Scriptures. And of course, the story eventually finds this Jesus character as someone executed by the state for fear that his controversial teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God would incite a riot and would incite rebellion. And the narrative depicts this Jesus as someone who's executed by the state and then rises from the dead. And in this really bizarre and incredible blend of ordinary language and fantastic themes, we find Luke 24, in which two of Jesus' disciples are approached by the rabbi that they thought was dead. And fascinatingly, Jesus begins to speak to them about, of all things, the Hebrew Scriptures, the story of Israel. So let's read Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Uh, They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And get this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You know, there's this well-worn maxim of Bib- on biblical authority that cites the whole of Scripture as something like timeless truth or timeless wisdom. Is that how we are supposed to understand the Bible's authority as timeless wisdom? What many proponents of the whole timeless wisdom adage suggests is that the truth contained within this library of writings is neither irrelevant nor outdated, even in our modern context. And there's an element of truth to that statement, to be sure. But there's also a problem. The entirety of the Bible is dispersed amongst, first of all, several literary genres. You know, some of the Bible is discourse or teaching and instruction. Some of the Bible is poetry. It's songs and lyrics and metaphors. Some of the Bible is parabolic or little fictional uh, bits of anecdotal wisdom. Some of the Bible is even apocalyptic literature, which is this bizarre ancient genre of writing that continues to confuse scholars to this very day. But the majority of Scripture is narrative. It chronicles stories, basically. Most of the Old Testament, including the thing that we call the law, comes by way of narrative. And in this story, all the laws and regulations for Israel 
make their way into the story after the motif of grace has come long before it. Meaning, by the time that you get to all the really bonker-sounding regulations of Exodus and Leviticus, God has already rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So you have this small, oppressed people that have been lovingly freed from the crushing grip of, of a tyrant. God rescues Israel, and he selects them as a means he will go about redeeming a broken world. So consequently, God intends to establish Israel as a nation by which the other people of the world will see and know Yahweh, the creator God, by giving Israel these covenant documents, what we call the law or the Torah. It's not the epitome of morality. It's not even the way things should be, per se. It's more like a way of restricting the violent culture in which Israel lives and breathes. So Yahweh intends to set up Israel as something of a banner for the rest of the nations of the world, that they might see and know the wisdom and justice of God by looking to his people. God himself summarizes this beautifully in his original covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's plan from the beginning is to rescue the world and Israel is the means by which God has set about such a monumental task. So God, he rescues Israel in the, in the beginning of the story out of slavery in Egypt and then he gives her this thing called the law. And at the heart of the law is this target to imitate God, or put it another way, to be different, basically. In fact, one dimension of that word that gets said a lot in the scriptures and in church, um, the word holy, is this idea of something that's altogether different, something that's totally unique and dedicated to something specific. Thus, Israel is called to be holy, that is, different, or set apart from evil because they are dedicated to God and his goodness. And there's a very transparent sort of down-to-earth uh, pragmatism to emulating God via the law. There's things like care for the poor or fair treatment and compensation for your employees, uh, active and practical compassion for folks that are disabled, um, respect for the elderly, integrity in the judicial process. There's safety precautions to preserve the sanctity of life. There's even ecological, ecological respect and sensitivity for God's good world. There's things like um, equality for foreigners and for ethnic minorities. There's honesty and trade and business. All that stuff is in the law. In fact, uh, Christopher Wright says it this way. We call such matters social ethics or human rights, and we think we're very modern and civilized for doing so. We go to great lengths to get them written pompously and de declarations for this and charters for that and codes for something else. God just calls them holiness. Uh, he can be a butthead, and I can quote him, and then it's not me saying it. It's like this guy. <laughs> Man, that guy's so rude. Was, that's accurate. This is, you know, this is the element of wisdom that we talk about in the Old Testament. Jesus emphatically insisted that all of the law, all of the Torah, could be summarized with the simple premise of loving God and loving people. And Jesus is not reinventing the Old Testament or casting it aside. He actually warns very sternly against doing that. But as a Jewish rabbi, as a teacher of the Old Testament, as someone who we actually believe had the entire Torah committed to memory, 
Jesus declared that at the heart of the law was this premise to love God with everything that you have and to love other people as yourself. That to say, by the time Jesus says this, this synopsis of the law is not some kind of new love ethic or this unheard of revolutionary new interpretation of the Old Testament. This was the fundamental ethical demand of the Old Testament itself. But if you've read through the law, even a little bit of the law, then you know as well as I do that it becomes a bit difficult (laughs) to fit certain passages into Jesus' beautiful summary. The whole law hangs on love God and love other people. Here's one of them. (laughs) I thought this would be fun. Uh, When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, (laughs) trim her nails, put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Now, (laughs) I'll I'll venture a guess that... uh, No one in this room, if we're being completely honest, reads a passage like that and goes, man, the Bible's awesome. This is fantastic. Because our, our very understandable tendency is to look into an ancient narrative of Israel's history from our very modern vantage point and through our very enlightened, you know, lenses. But to understand the story, the idea is to read the text on the author's terms, not our own which demands that we enter the often barbaric world of the ancient Near East. And within that world in question, something like brutal war conquest was not only normative, it was something that was encouraged. And throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, the women left behind in the the wake of a vanquished army were assumed to become the sexual property of victorious men. One ancient Near Eastern historian I read this week observed, since a female slave was property... Her owner could exploit her sexuality and her fertility like any other beneficial aspect of property, according to the rule and rubric of the ancient Near East. In other words, she could be made his sex slave. And prisoners of war, in general, were at the mercy of their captors to treat however they saw fit. They were usually killed. If they weren't, they were enslaved and they were blinded first, which doesn't seem like the best way to go about, you know, enlisting a slave, but hey, it's... Do your thing. Um, And uh, if they weren't killed, if they weren't blinded and enslaved, they were usually trafficked off to high bidders. But notice, in Deuteronomy, the emphasis is on restricting the rights of the soldier. Unlike virtually every other ancient Near Eastern army um, rule book, rape is not an option for Israel, nor can the soldier take the woman home as sexual property. Rather... The soldier is to take full responsibility for giving the woman the status of wife with all the corresponding legal and social benefits. Even then, this isn't something the soldier could simply shove her into. She was to be permitted a time to grieve, which is the whole weird shave the head and trim the nails thing. It's not how I grieve personally, but, you know, everyone's got their own thing. Um, And after all this, if the man is (laughs) even lamer than we think he is, and he regrets this action, she couldn't be tossed aside as property. She was to be given a normal, albeit tragic, freedom of a divorced wife. And please hear me on this bit. The last line in the passage, in uh, verse 14, I believe, reveals God's heart toward the whole situation. He says, you must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. 
the whole thing is dishonorable. This isn't God telling Israel, this is a great idea, go try this. It's actually dishonorable. And at this point, this is what I'm trying to get at. Though it's tremendously difficult for us to gather from a cursory reading of the text as we're situated from our very modern vantage point, these laws in Israel's history are one way that God worked with the culture of the ancient Near East by accommodating that culture while simultaneously drawing his people forward toward something better. So God wants to be with Israel. That's his whole thing. He goes on about it quite a bit. He wants to redeem the world. That's also his big thing. He goes on about it quite a bit. And this is the God that's depicted even in the ugliness of the ancient Near East. And the idea isn't that God's kind of like, ah, this is the way things are, so go nuts, I guess. It's the world we live in, you know. No, God wants to draw his people out of the barbaric culture in which they're situated, but rather than insisting that Israel leap from the ground to the, the top of the Empire State Building, God shows them where the stairs are. God accommodates but he calls them forward. God enters into the world as Israel knows it, and God institutes what seems like radical reform to that culture as it is, and even then he's still pulling Israel forward incrementally, piece by piece, that they might be a light to the nations around them. Because the culture in which Israel was situated wouldn't just be strange to us, it would be altogether alien. You know, uh, a few years ago, I think I've told uh, many of you guys this, but I used to travel full-time playing music with a bunch of um, ragamuffins. And uh, a few years ago, uh, it, the year was almost over, right? Yeah, it was in the fall. Um, the year was almost over, and we um, were in, this gentleman in Germany or something invited us to go on this long tour of Europe. It was like six different countries, none of them English-speaking. And... Uh, he was like, oh, I'll book it, it'll be great. And we were like, well, that sounds great. We've never been in Europe for more than like a few days at a time. That'll be a blast. Who doesn't want to go to Europe and, you know, play music? And um, So we said, sure, great, sounds awesome. And we had no, like, tour guide or translator. None of us spoke German, which was primarily where we were, where we were across Germany. No one spoke French or any of the other languages of the countries we were. And we figured this would be fine. Um, so we got, the, and we rented this van. We got out at the airport. And where, where was that? Where's the airport in Dusseldorf? Yeah? Does that sound like a real German thing? <laughs> Dusseldorf, I think. If Patrick were here, he would correct me. It was Dusseldorf, I think. Um, not that it matters. And then we get in the van, we start driving, and everyone just starts screaming because all the signs are completely illegible. Not, no, one, no one knows what the heck we're looking at or like, you know, and, uh, and, and it was stick, so only one of us or two of us could drive it. <laughs> so we're like, ah! just flying down this interstate where you can go as fast as you like. And, and on the... What do they call the thing? That's the one. Oh, everyone knows about that, but you don't know, you don't know about Dusseldorf? Um, and then uh, it, was, it was honestly quite fun looking back on it now, but for six weeks across like six different countries where, where there was no English speaking um, formally or, or at least yeah, palpably, you, we're constantly going in restaurants and being like, I don't know what any of that. I guess this, you know, and point out. And we're these, we're these dumb Americans that are like all loud and speaking our arrogant English and coming in there, and they should, surely they should just speak our language. I mean, we're there in their place. Um, the, the idea that I'm getting at was this was not a good thing that we did. It was quite foolish, quite uh, ignorant, and we, it didn't go so well for us. We made it by the grace of God. We made it through those six weeks uh, across Europe. But I think that 
that's the kind of thing that we do with the scriptures. We're looking at a world that's so completely unlike ours that it makes my trip to Europe look quite accommodating. Um, it's a 3,000-year-old uh, culture and language and worldview, and we just expect that we can just kind of stroll into it with our very modern thinking and our own cultural current and be like, it'll surely speak to all the things that I have going on in my life and answer the questions that I have about what's going on politically and scientifically in the world. And the Old Testament's just not prepared to do those things. And the thing is, even with study and investigation, we still won't get the world of the ancient Near East because it just isn't our world. The best we can hope to do is sort of try and understand it. We can only imagine, in other words. The world of brutality in the ancient Near East was like our world after it. It was just a place badly damaged from the fall to the very core of even the most basic social structures. So God steps into this world, into a world descending into chaos and says, I'll start over with these guys, you know. And one of the means by which God is going to set Israel apart is by guiding them in creating a new culture, one that's not like the culture around them. And even the most bizarre practices of Israel are fantastically unique in how drastically removed they are from the practices of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors, from Israel's approach to marriage and even divorce, to things like corporeal punishment, to... Um, the, the judicial system, and on down the list. It seems barbaric to us, but please read some of these other things and you'll be like, oh my Lord, these people were miles ahead of everyone around them and they're constantly being drawn forward. And God himself makes this quite clear that this is what he wants to do with Israel. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, an altogether different nation. Israel would come to be seen by the world in light of their practical obedience to God's law, or that was the idea anyway. By living in step with God's commands, as they were being drawn forward to something better, Israel would raise questions about the God that they worshipped, about the quality of life that they enjoyed, about the integrity of the social structures they had instituted, and the things to which they were en route. Deuteronomy 4 summarizes it sort of like this. Observe these laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? And it isn't snobbery. It isn't like elitism, like, man, Israel's so much better than anyone else. The, the idea is that the nations would be drawn into this way of life. It's like finding the light switch in a dark room and being the only one who can get at it. Um, Israel is to be a light to the nations. That's the point. But to get that done, God steps into the world that Israel knows, and he even accommodates it in order to see that this purpose gets achieved. Thus, the Old Testament contains a tremendous amount of wisdom, yes, but not all of its timeless wisdom. Much of the Old Testament, the law included, I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys this, seems quite clear in terms of its timelessness. You're, you know, read something like, do not murder, and you're thinking, oh, that seems pragmatic even now, 3,000 years later. But interestingly, we don't have to move all the way to Leviticus to understand that God has a heart on the matter of violence and murder. His concern for the sanctity of life is evident in Genesis 1. 
The same could be said about covenant faithfulness in marriage, about adultery, about greed, about coveting. All this is clear from the outset of the biblical narrative. In this way, even the Ten Commandments themselves are drawing Israel and subsequently the world back toward the heart that God established in um, the outset of the biblical narrative, life before the fall. He's not leading them into something new and better. He's reminding them of what he had said in the beginning. In this sense, the law of the Old Testament is not timeless. It's not for all people. It's not for all time, nor were the laws of Israel, get this, some divine ideal for the people of the future. In fact, God himself declares the need for a new covenant to replace the old In Jeremiah, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By the Old Testament's own admission, the Mosaic law or the Torah, the laws that we read about, even the bonkers ones, were, were inferior and already in want of a worthy successor. And God worked with a very certain people in a very certain place in this particular way at one particular time and not anymore. We don't, and you know, this is not news to you guys, but we don't as followers of Jesus, for example, refrain from eating shellfish or trimming the edges of our beards, at least not because the Torah tells us to. I actually don't do either of those things, ironically, uh, but not because the Torah says that I can't do them. <laughs> Uh, And that's not to say that such guidelines were evil or that they were mistaken. They were just an earlier part of the story. We don't use the Old Testament um, for war conquest or we end with things like the Crusades or Manifest Destiny. It's not written to us in that way. Paul writes this in Galatians 3. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Messiah came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So for Paul, the law was something uh, like a nanny that was intended to watch over Israel as she grew, that she might be prepared for the coming Messiah. Or how's this for an analogy? And I was really looking forward to this one. Um, At one point, Abby and I had taught our cat to use the toilet, you know, the, the actual human toilet. Um, and we, <laughs> we bought this kit, it's like a, a system of plastic concentric circles, you know, with perforated edges, and one situates it inside the toilet bowl and sprinkles cat litter in there, like apparently this gesture means it's like magic dust. Um, and as the cat jumps up there and adjusts to the idea of, well, this is weird, my litter box is uh, elevated, uh, you, you sort of punch out one circle at a time over a span of weeks and weeks, and gradually over time the entire kit has been dismissed, you know, it's got built-in obsolescence, and this unhappy, reluctant cat is sitting on the edge of the the toilet bowl, like, where where did it go? This is the only choice I have, you know. But the cat's using the toilet. It's incredible. What a world. Um, And as I finished writing that analogy, I was like, oh, man, people are going to be laughing at this, but don't, don't feel bad for laughing. I'm the one who will be judged for comparing the Torah to a cat using the toilet. You guys are safe. Uh, 
this might be a better analogy. A friend of mine, he describes it, the law, as, as like this nanny that invites this group of kids to play outside. Because kids, a lot of them, like to play outside. And it says, you've got freedom, play, have fun, do whatever you want. Don't go out in the road for your own good. You know, you'll get hit by cars or what I always tell my kid. Why are we afraid of cars? Cars can be dangerous, Dada. Yeah, cars can be dangerous. You know, so it's like the built-in. You can do whatever you want, just don't go out in the street. And then, of course, the kids run immediately into the street. So then Nanny's like, well, great, come on, we got to go all in the backyard now. It's fenced in back there, you can't run in the street. Now play in here, you can do whatever you want. Right away, they start like eating dirt and throw it in each other's eyes. And you're like, oh my gosh, no, we can't do this anymore either. We're going to have to go inside and you can learn to play in there. The idea wasn't to start playing inside, like, oh, this is the ideal, we should be playing inside. It actually was going to be much better than that. But that's where the kids found themselves, because the law was created to give Israel guidelines and restrictions so that they could be the type of people who would go play in the front yard. Because of their culture, because of their tendency toward obedience, or disobedience rather, and sin, Israel needed a nanny or a guardian. Um, In his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, Paul Copen writes this, how then did God address the patriarchal structures, the primogeniture, the rights of the firstborn, polygamy, warfare, servitude, slavery, and a number of other of the uh, fallen social arrangements that were permitted because of the hardness of human hearts? He met Israel part way. As Jesus stated it in Matthew 19.8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. We could apply this passage to many problematic structures within the ancient Near Eastern context. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted servitude and patriarchy and warfare and the like. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. They, or the laws, were not ideal and not universal. So, if we start to think about the Torah or the law with these sort of useful, I hope, building blocks in place, it gives us some meaning, some means of clarifying and contextualizing the Old Testament, especially a huge chunk of what the Old Testament revolves around. But the question remains, what's the point? What, what are we getting at? How is this authoritative to us? If anything, it seems like it makes it more problematic to say it's not for us and is still authoritative in some way. How is it meaningful and formative in ways that still matter to a, followers of, a follower of Jesus in 2016 in Vancouver? And there are three concepts I want us to consider before we end tonight. The first is this concept of the Bible's authority. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have held this library, for longer than that, frankly, I've held this library of writings to be authoritative because they believe it comes from God. God, after all, is the authority to his follower, and consequently, the text has the right to communicate to us. That's why, because it comes from God. Our authority. It has the right to instruct us and direct us in our thinking and our living. And we, in turn, submit to the authority of the Scriptures, bringing our thinking and our living into congruence with what the text is asking us to do. The second concept I want to try to understand is this one of inspiration. You know, Paul in uh, 2 Timothy writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God or God-breathed. And interestingly, at the time that Paul drafted this letter, obviously, there was no formal New Testament to speak of. So Paul was writing about the Old Testament as something that was breathed out by God. The Bible itself indicates that it has its source in God. Thus, the writings of the Old Testament were approved by God as he communicated through various human authors. 
And the, the voices and the personalities, even the agendas of the authors, very much remain decidedly intact, but that is the mode through which God chose to communicate. And the third thing I want us to think about is this idea of revelation. God is revealing what He's like across the pages of Scripture, across the pages of the Old Testament. He's showing us who He is and what He's after. You know, pagan peoples of the ancient Near East could only guess as to what their gods were like because the other gods had not disclosed themselves. Israel, on the other hand, had been given a gracious revelation of who God is and what he's like. The other gods of the ancient world were thought to be moody and capricious and unpredictable, but Yahweh, Israel's God, was able to declare with certainty, this is what I'm like because his character is completely unchanging. He describes himself in Exodus, very specifically, the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. He says that he's compassionate and that he's gracious, that he's abounding in love and faithfulness, that he's very slow to get angry, that he maintains love to thousands of generations even, and that he does justly punish evil because he doesn't like it. And this is crucial for what we're getting at tonight. We have no idea what God is like apart from his willingness to divulge the information. Across the pages of Israel's history, we encounter God's own story about himself, offered for the distinct purpose that we might know him. This is not arbitrary information. It's not a hypothesis. This is God speaking through human authors. Yes, the medium is a human author with his own personality and his own agenda, but inspired by God and authoritative because it has its source in God. Yes, it's a different time and a different place, but in this story, we learn what God is like and what he's after and who we are in turn. And please hear me on this piece. It takes work to understand the complexity of the story, but the work is worthwhile. We do not, therefore, have the luxury of sort of picking through the text in search of the passages that we approve of, that make sense, that sound nice, you know, for a tweet or whatever it might be, um, and then dismissing the ones that are like, oh, geez, shave her head and trim her nails, that sounds awful, we'll put that one over here. Because to do that is just essentially creating a God uh, of our own imagination, and what's the point? Any of us can do that. You can, you know, make it look like an elephant made of cotton candy or, or whatever you, that's a movie reference, anyone? The, yeah, Okay. I won't spoil it for you if you don't know what it is. Anyone can do that is the point. You can make up God to be whatever you want it to be like. You don't have to use the Bible for that. Now, it comes as no surprise that accepting the Scriptures as they are is no easy task for a number of reasons, not least among which is that many passages baffle our modern comprehension. And frankly, they're just not what they seem to be from a cursory reading. There's work to be done in understanding the scriptures, in particular the Old Testament. That's what this year of biblical literacy is all about. To access the authority of the text, we have to go through the human communicators that wrote it. And we go in search of what the author intended to communicate to a people that's not us in a different time, in a different part of the world, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not impossible, but it's not an easy thing to do. And the idea is that we pursue the message given though it does take work, and we accept the message given once that work has been done to understand and comprehend it, and then we respond to the message given accordingly. 
So how do we do that with the Old Testament to something that's in a lot of ways outdated and no longer pragmatically applicable to us here and now? After all, the idea isn't to sort of read the stories as moral anecdotes. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The idea certainly isn't to sit back and just read one passage, strip it of its context and go, hmm, how does this hit me right now, you know? Um, When we read this story, these stories, when we read this history, we aren't in search of an ethical or a moral prescription, as in, go do this morally, you do likewise. We We aren't even wandering about in search of role models. We aren't attempting to excuse the weird stuff away and say that it's a metaphor or that it's a myth. Um, The question that we're asking is what is this teaching us about God and about who God is? Old Testament scholar John Walton puts it this way, the core of the text authority is not what the Bible tells us to do, though its commands and instructions cannot be ignored, but in what it tells us to think and believe. The core of its authority is to be found in what it tells us God is like. We are compelled to accept this picture of God, place it in the center of our worldview, and make it the basis for everything that we think and do. What we believe about God shapes us in the most fundamental and foundational levels of our very humanity. All we do and say and think will flow from our developed or else underdeveloped portrait of God, voluntarily or involuntarily, or else in defiance of that portrait. And the idea that some events happen in history doesn't make the text scripture. There are lots of historical accounts about the ancient Near East. Millions, actually, I learned today. (laughs) What God is trying to show and teach us through those events about himself and the world, that's what makes this scripture. If we're after an understanding of God and his unfolding plan throughout the ages, we cannot be satisfied with select verses and select Bible stories. We have to see the bigger picture. And that picture flows through a diverse system of authors and literary genres. There's the wisdom literature that's filled with advice for living well. There's the Psalms that are filled with worship and lament and lyrics. There's history, there's parable, there's fact, there's even mythology in the Bible. There's modern truth, there's ancient thinking. And in all of these things, we're getting God's story. The Old Testament is God's revelation of himself to us. This is where God begins to tell us what he's like, a story that will ultimately come to fruition in greatest clarity and truth in Jesus of Nazareth. But if God didn't tell us about himself, we'd be left to guess. But here we have God's own story about himself given to us that we might know him, that knowing him, we might want to relate to him. And that's what God's after, to be with us. We know one another via our stories, where we've come from or what's happened to us or what we're passionate about, things that get us excited. To know the story is to know the person. So we come to know someone by encountering and interacting with their stories. And the same is true about God. It's not just that his story was written by authors immersed in a world that we cannot understand. It's that it also speaks to our modern cultural context once the hard work has been done to understand the context that came before it. How do we respond to the authority and the inspiration and the revelation of the Hebrew Scriptures? We respond, and listen to me on this, we respond by embracing the portrait of God that it offers. 
and who we are in turn, who we're called to be in turn. Much of such a narrative won't, in theory, uh, lead you into practical steps for tomorrow in the instructional sense. But we are constantly, by reading Israel's history, filling up this reservoir of our minds with information of what God is like. And we will draw from that reservoir, whether we mean to or not, inevitably, over years and years that come in our lives. Each follower of Jesus is formed and shaped by the ideas to which we expose ourselves, by our culture, by our upbringing, by the things that we think about and the things that we interact with. Um, everyone is constantly being formed. You know that, right? Like the, the idea that there's spiritual formation and that there's um, other modes of formation. Formation is an involuntary thing. You're all being formed by something. The question is what? And can you select the thing that you're being formed about? When we interact with the scriptures, when we consider what we believe to be true or false about God and what we believe God thinks about us and about the world and about our families and our jobs and about the future and about evil and about the environment and even the animal kingdom and the food that we eat and the places that we travel and or the community that we call our own. All these things are profoundly impacted and shaped by our idea of God. Across the often confusing and complicated pages of the story of Israel, a portrait of God comes through exceedingly clear, even without having to do all the hard work of digging deep and understanding the context, is that God is faithfully chasing after his lost people, that he might be with him. God is obsessed with this idea of being with his people. That's the plan. God intends to be with his people, with us. God with us. God's good kingdom spread across the cosmos and him dwelling in it with us. That's what God wants. That's always been God's agenda. This begins in Eden, humans in relationship with God, sin fractures the relationship, and God chases after his adulterous lover. God is about restoring his presence and his relationships. That's what God wants. So it comes as no surprise then that Jesus whom the Bible declares with specificity to be the truest, clearest, best picture of what God is like, of what God has always been like, of what God will always be like. Jesus himself is called Emmanuel, or God with us. And there's a story that folks tell about um, preacher and theologian John Wesley, according to the family that was encircling him on his deathbed. He ended his life by saying, best of all, God is with us. And uh, a, a fellow that I admire once told me that this, he had puzzled over this for years because he thought, why not say best of all, you know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and because of him we can be saved by faith, not by works or whatever would be expected of someone like him. And why not say best of all, by God's grace, I have brought countless numbers to Jesus and I have founded a movement that will live on and do good long after I am gone. Why say best of all, God is with us. And I think maybe it's because John Wesley understood that the beauty that is Jesus or Emmanuel is God with us, the reality of God's end goal. That no, we're not alone, we're not without hope, we're not without purpose, we're not without affection or care or love. God is not aloof or distant or dead. 
No, God longs to be with us. The authoritative message of the Old Testament and the scriptures as a whole, that God is about redeeming the world so that he can be with us. There's a reason that we set the stage uh, from the outset of the evening with this seemingly unrelated story from Luke's gospel. So imagine, just take your head back there for a second, two women leaving the scene of the resurrection, which is a funny thing to do, and they're disheartened, and the clearest, most beautiful picture of what God is like, Jesus, Emmanuel, goes after them as they leave the scene of the resurrection. And using the text, it says that he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In this case, in all the Old Testament concerning himself, Jesus, God with us. Tonight, though I understand this conversation is big, the implications are huge, I want to think along these simple lines. This is what God is after, to be with us, that we might be his people and that he would be our God. And I, I suspect that among the varying pictures of God occupying each of our respective paradigms this evening, many of us have reason to doubt such a thing, that that's what God is like, or that's what God is after. Or at least we have reason to call that into question or to dismiss it altogether. And yet, this is the story the scripture authoritatively tells. A God chasing after a people prone to run from him. We respond to the scripture's authority by embracing its portrait of God. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that a friend of mine summarizes the Old Testament by saying, Israel fails, God is faithful. Um, And I am convinced that so often we run after this effort to drag the Old Testament into our own cultural river and, and make it answer our own cultural questions and, you know, pit it against science or politics or whatever it might be, questions that it's not even trying to answer remotely. And we not only overlook the fact that the ancient Near Eastern authors don't know about our culture or at all, but we're missing the point altogether. Israel's story is like our story. The God that chases after wayward Israel is the God that chases after wayward us. And when you conjure an image of God in your mind, does it align with the authoritative picture painted in the text? A God in desperate pursuit against all odds of his wayward love? Or do you see something else? 